welcome to the Coaching Focus podcast. I'm Trayton Vance, CEO and founder of Coaching Focus. I've been coaching for over 25 years and I wanted to share that experience and those lessons learned with you. I will converse with fellow coaches, chief executive officers, senior leaders and HR professionals to bring you insight into how coaching is being used, the current thinking around coaching and new ideas that will hopefully ignite your thinking and help to facilitate coaching for a better tomorrow. This podcast explores how well-being is evolving in the coaching environment. I'm joined today by Craig Fern, founder of Lighthouse Mentoring. Craig is a globally recognized mental health and well-being advisor. He advises on boards and CEOs to help them implement leading transformational programs which place people well-being within their business strategies. A senior member of the European Mentoring and Coaching Council and the Institute of Directors Ambassador for Mental Wellbeing. Welcome, Craig. We're delighted you're joining us for this conversation on how well-being is evolving in the coaching environment. Craig, so welcome. And you've heard the fantastic introduction about you as an amazing human being. But I'd love to understand you from a personal perspective and tell us your story, which will then put context to why you're sat here and having this podcast conversation with me. Sure, yeah. I always, um, yeah, I'm always a little bit overwhelmed when people sort of list these things because I really sort of, you know, this is something that's, been hard work. I started sort of this journey, I suppose, back at the age of 12, where suffering from depression, anxiety, and panic attacks uh, at school. Wasn't the best student, constantly having issues, problems. Got to my GCSEs, really didn't do well. Uh, I was the guy at the back of the hall who was uh, ill and, and sort of telling people that he couldn't do it and then being ushered into the room. By your, by your teachers and say, look, you know, you've got to get on with it, you've got to do this. Um, came out with very little in the way of qualifications from a, from a very good education at a, at a very good school. Went into financial services, did all right. Unfortunately, during my time, I, I came down with a condition called chronic cluster headache. I have those even today uh, for about three hours a day, every day. And they're supposed to be one of the top two primary pains that we can, uh, we can have. The problem was that uh, no one knew what it was, and I ended up uh, in and out of hospital on a regular basis uh, for scans and things like this, which meant obviously my my output um, was not what it could have been. I was taken aside one day by our, uh, my manager, who basically said, "Look, we've got some you know options for you. Um, number one, you know you can leave us. Or number two, we're going to have to start working you out um, from a, a medical point of view." Very unlike, didn't really know what I was doing at the time, so I decided actually I'd rather leave under my own steam than actually go down that, that sort of route. Went home and probably came out of my house about a dozen times in the next 12 months. Ended up going into counselling, put on a lot of weight, went up to about 24 stone, really didn't speak to family, friends, basically isolated myself because I didn't know what to do. You know, obviously my mental health at that time was flaring again. You know, these things hadn't gone away and still haven't gone away. And I, um, I started counseling, as I said, I, um, I ended up going five sessions, wasn't told 
that I only had five sessions. Um, got to the end of the fifth session, gentleman said thanks ever so much for coming, and, you know, I hope you fixed, which was quite strange. Uh, I left, got home, decided that even the NHS couldn't fix me, uh, and I attempted suicide. Um, I wasn't that great at it, obviously, I'm still here. So I tried again about two weeks later. Still, you know, didn't really, uh, didn't really take for me. So um, I kind of got to this place where I was like, you know what? There's got to be more. There's got to be more than this. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't this shaft of light or wonderful epiphany that came upon me. It was just this pure, I'm meant for more. I, I need to do something else. So I decided to go back to counselling, but I decided to go back, take the bits I liked, and then go and find other things to fill in the bits I didn't. And it, it became a bespoke toolkit for me, rather than a one-size-fits-all solution. And this went on for about a year. Until I got to a point where I was like, okay, I've got to test this. I've got to see how it's going. Things seem to be going right. I'm a lot better than I was. Let's, let's see where I can go. So I decided to go back to university, or to university in the first place, because you know, we need pieces of paper these days and we need these qualifications to, to sort of get work. And I went back, came out with a degree, then went on to take uh, my teaching qualifications and ended up actually managing the course that I had graduated from. And what course did you graduate from? It was forensic psychology. Okay. Which was quite interesting. It's, uh, it was kind of what I thought I wanted to do at the time. Um, it was one of those jobs where your grand knew what you did. And, you know, that was a really important thing for me because, you know, she, she was able to tell people, you know, this is what my grandson does. Um, Just probably. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. But it wasn't it wasn't complicated. It was sort of, you know, are you working a bank or are you working at this or are you working at that? It was one of those old established careers that um, you know she could say this is what um, this is what I grasped. But it it just wasn't for me. It wasn't where I felt at home, it wasn't where I felt comfortable. I was much more interested in the sort of pastoral side of things, how I could uh, help others achieve their goals than I was actually teaching the subject. So sort of looking outside the realms of, of the actual subject and how do I get to where you need to be. So I left. I left the pension, I left the, the, the guaranteed monthly salary and I went self-employed. Jumped through the government hoops, became a government provider to work with university students. Then went on to work one-to-one uh, -one with people within business from sort of direct to C-suite level. Um, and then I went one further than that and, and alongside working with the individuals, I started working with the businesses themselves in terms of the internal culture and, uh, and what we could do to sort of uh, better maintain the well-being of the workforce to ultimately further the objectives of the business, which was a a long, long way from where I started and ever thought I would be. Great. So that was your transition into coaching, mentoring, consulting around the well-being space. Yeah, indeed. I, um, along the way, um, was picking up coaching qualifications and things like this. I, you know, senior member of the European Mentoring Coaching Council. 
I'm also the well-being ambassador for the Institute of Directors. Um, and these are all things that came to me as I was doing the job. And, you know, again, very flattering in, in, in many respects because, you know, I'm just me doing the job that I love to do. Um, you know, the fact that somebody's saying, well done for doing that job, do you want to do a bit, uh, a bit here? That has always been a, a sort of thing for me to, to sort of, um, you know, you, you kind of look at it and you think, wow, do I deserve that type of job recognition? But yes, definitely my route to the, the sort of coaching and mentoring world has been based upon I suppose what I wish I had to a certain extent when I was going through my worst times, even when I was working in, uh, even working in business, so working sort of at director level and, and C-suite level, which I have, still currently a, a chief executive of a company called Book of Beasties that works in children's um, mental wellbeing. But what I provide now and, and sort of what I've, I've worked towards for the last 15 years or so is the things that I never had when I, and I know it sounds incredibly cliche that, you know, we, we look at what we didn't have and then we go and try and provide it for everybody else. But, you know, it's, 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 it comes across as very sort of easy, I suppose, to, to overlook certain individuals within a, within a framework, the higher they rise, the more bulletproof they're supposed to be and the less issues they're supposed to have because they claim a higher wage. Um, and it just isn't the case. We're all human. We all feel these things. We all need these things. And, you know, again, it was something that I, I didn't have and I couldn't find. So I decided that actually I was, I was going to fit into the slot and I was going to be the one. And provide that service. Because okay. we're all vulnerable, as you quite rightly say. So thank you, Craig, for outlining your, your personal journey. And I hope our listeners can appreciate why you're the right person to have this conversation to understand how well-being fits in with coaching and coaching fits in with well-being. Yeah. So, Craig, 15 years of experience of working in the coaching mentoring world, and I guess but your expertise about around well-being, and I'm sure the coaches that are listening would love to understand the things you've learned and the things they should look out for and any guidance you can provide to enable them to provide a great service as and when their clients so some of those well-being elements. Yeah, well-being is a quite a fickle beast. Whenever you're dealing with an individual, you work on a, in my opinion, you work on a like no trust basis. And you know, the more people tend to trust you and like you, the more they tell you. Whether it's appropriate and you're the right person to talk to or not. Sure. So as the relationship starts building up. For more and more disclosure because they like, but more importantly, trust you and trust you with their data. Indeed. Yeah. And this is the, it's, it's kind of the curse and the blessing of the coach. You are in an intensely privileged position. You are providing an individual with something that they can't get anywhere else that they require. And they are putting their trust and faith in you to be the one to provide that which is a, a feeling unlike any other, especially when you have those clients that are you know, really, really struggling and then all of a sudden the penny drops and things start to turn and change and they're the first people on the phone to tell you that suddenly something's gone right and thanks ever so much for what you said and 
all these kind of things. And, and when you say they can't get there anywhere else, are you in simple terms talking about an opportunity to be listened to and heard? I am to a certain extent, but what I mean by that is without judgment. E effectively, when, when we deal with people in our workspace, if I'm your manager and, and you're my work colleague, we have a really great relationship, we talk, we laugh, we joke. However, there are, of course, workplace boundaries that stand and there are things that you aren't necessarily going to want to disclose. We would like to think that anything of any importance you would be happy to disclose. But again, in a coaching environment as an external, you have no axe to grind from either side of that relationship. And therefore you become a very appealing confidant, especially as you're having these conversations with people to build their confidence, to build their ability to do with certain things. Um, and as people are becoming more confident, they are more happy to talk and they're more happy to come into these sort of relationships and, and engage. Now, that, again, as I say, that puts us in an incredibly privileged position because, you know, these people are engaging with you because of your knowledge, your skills and expertise, but they're also engaging with you because of the fact they like you, or the fact they trust you, and the fact that you've been able to help them in the past. Now, I say it's also the curse of the coach, because in actuality, we are built to be able to deal with every situation and every single issue that's brought in front of us. In fact, there are some interviews that, some things that have been brought in front of us that are so far outside of our sort of realm of experience that, you know, you kind of think to yourself occasionally, well, why on earth would you tell me about that? Most of the reasoning behind that is because they can and they need to talk to somebody. So, again, working within the well-being space, which is where I, I sit, this happens to me daily because this is my job. The coach that doesn't sit within the well-being space, it's important that we understand exactly where the boundaries lie and you establish, maintain those boundaries within any coaching relationship. So uh, again, at the very beginning of any sort of formal um, arrangement between yourself and a, a potential client, it's establishing where the lines are drawn. It's establishing what is allowed, what isn't allowed. And actually putting in place, for example, I always tell my clients that, you know, if there's anything you tell me that I feel puts you or somebody else at risk, then I have a duty to disclose that information. Everything else can remain confidential and, you, and we can have that conversation, but there are still limits, even in a coaching relationship that is born purely on, on a well-being discussion between two individuals. Yeah. So I guess what you're talking about here, Craig, is around contracting to check what is in scope, what isn't in scope, and, and what is confidential and what is outside of that confidentiality agreement. Tell our listeners around how you identify when boundaries are being crossed, where we go beyond the, the coaching realm to start moving into that counselling or psychotherapy realm. Give me an understanding of how you notice that. The, there are some very easy ways, which is when someone comes out and says, do you think I'm depressed? Again, 
it's kind of the trick question because we are not clinically trained to diagnose. Therefore, we are not in a situation as a coach, of course, unless you have other qualifications that enable you to do this. But we should never be expressing opinion on diagnosis in any way, shape, or form. That's, that's not for us to do. Um, that's kind of the slightly more straightforward one. The other one is when sort of somebody comes and starts hinting around an issue, um, or they start sort of testing to see where the boundaries might be, and then if they can push them back a little bit, and if they can push them back a little bit further, and then a little bit further. So creeping boundaries, basically. Indeed. Can you give me an example of? Yeah. So um, with certainly in the, the sort of um, the well-being, mental well-being world, there are those that sort of start off and, and everything is completely business, and they don't really want to talk to you. And they're, you know, they're there and they're there. But there are some that sort of turn up, and the first thing they say is, "Well, I'm not quite sure why I'm here, but someone said it might be a good idea if I spoke to someone." And you're like, okay, fine, and you know, you, you start that conversation and you start talking to people about, you know, how they're how they're going and what the session's like, things like that. And then they just take that little bit more ground off you, so that they sort of, you know, oh, what do you think about this? You know, do you think it's something that I should be doing? Again, it's just that little step forward, but it's asking an opinion based on why they're there. So it's like, okay, you know, um, well, you know, that's for you to decide, Mr. Client. Um, you know, we're here to have this conversation and this is the way it is. So it's, again, those creeping boundaries then go from what do you think into, you know, you're supposed to be here to fix me. What are you going to do to solve my problem? Then? What is it that you've got that no one else has got that's going to solve me? And again, especially as you, you rise up and you're dealing with sort of higher people in, in the chain, there can sometimes be this intolerance that comes with the whole sort of well-being argument that they don't have time. They've got lots of other things that are massively busy and they should be going off and doing these, these sorts of things. So you're here, I'm here, how are you going to sort this out for me? And again, we have this within the coaching relationship anyway. Yeah. Where you know clients are coming to us for whatever reason, and they expect everything done yesterday, and that we're going to wave a wand and it's going to change them without them having to put in any effort or any work or do anything themselves. This is where the creep comes in because the more responsibility they push to you, the less responsibility they take for themselves. Yeah, and I guess the point you raise is around them wanting you to fix them. And in your personal story, it was very clear that you look for ways of fixing yourself or making things better for you. Yeah, maybe fix is the, uh, I use the word fix quite because I use it sort of in my general language a lot anyway. Mm. In my own personal experience, I suppose I wasn't trying to fix me and because I'm not actually fixed. Sure, um, it's an ongoing journey. Indeed, and, and again, this is the, this is the thing that as coaches we are confronted with a lot, that actually, we, you know, this is an ongoing journey. This isn't a, you know, one size fits all, go and buy yourself a pair of size eight trainers and everything will be fine. 
it's a, this is how we get to where we're going to go and we're going to go on this journey together. And there's going to be a bit from me and there's going to be a bit from you and we're going to work together to a common goal. And, you know, I, I look at myself now and actually what, I'm, what I can do now and what I am able to do now is I'm better able to cope with the situations I find myself in than I am fixed. So I understand the nature of what's going on better than I did. I have ways of dealing with it that are mine, that I know work for me. These are all things that help me rather than fix me. So coping strategies that you can utilise to, to help you be as effective as you can within that situation. And, and the other thing in coaching we talk about is signposting. So give me an understanding of, you know, how to use signposting and what the best way to signpost is for. Sure. So within, again, within a general coaching realm, whenever you feel somebody is creeping or they've just come flat out and said. Straight disclosure. Straight disclosure. It is important, as I said, we do not overstep our boundaries. We are not diagnosis, we are not clinician, we are not solutions in inverted commas. What we are is we are signposters uh, in that particular instance. I always carry with me uh, details of help organisations, groups. I point people towards their GPs. I point people towards uh, any internal measures that I know are available. So employment uh, assistance programmes. Right, employment assistance programmes. Yes. Um, should they be the right solution? Yep. Um, back to internal systems like HR, if absolutely necessary. Um, these are the tools of the coach. So it is about giving that sort of holistic package of alternatives rather than, whoa, hang on a minute, I don't deal with this. You're on your own, mate. I only deal with this. Yeah. It's, it's about continuing that. Because remember, you may be the only person that they've had this conversation with. And if you're the guy that puts your hands in the air and says, no, 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 well, how likely are they to have that conversation with someone else? Sure, and I guess you're eroding the trust and the relationship because you're putting that sort of panic into the Indeed, relationship. Uh, but the other side of that equation is the self-protection of the coach. So we as individuals, we, we take a stake in the people we work with. And, you know, we want them to succeed. This, we're not just there to turn up, take the money and leave. We're there to actually make a difference to the individuals we work with. Now, if we take on through transference too much of this, mm. we suffer as well. And again, this is where the creep and the boundaries come into place. Now, the best coaches that I've ever known and the best coaches I've ever been around, seen, and something that I've, I've been very, very conscious of bringing into my own personal practice is the idea of the third person. Now, when I deal with a client, the best way for me to try and understand what's going on is to try and put myself in the client's shoes. So empathise. Indeed. So I'm there, I'm, I'm, now, if I go from me to the client, empathise, hear everything that's going on, and go straight back into me, 
I'm bringing everything along the journey with yeah. me. Yeah. Which means I then carry that and I take it somewhere else. And then I take another lot and I do the same. And it repeat and repeat and repeat. Now, personally, I have supervision. Um, I ensure I have supervision so I have someone I can talk to. And I get to offload once a month. Yep. But what I try and do is, is, is actually sort of work through the third person scenario. So rather than coming straight back to myself, I go into third person where effectively I look at the scenario and it allows me to logically process what I've taken from them before I then return to myself and my own sort of emotions. And I know that sounds like an out-of-body experience. I don't float around in, in space. Sure, but it's a filter for you to Correct. stop the emotions being absorbed yeah, by yourself. Yeah, as much as I possibly can. Okay. But it also allows me to think my way logically through an emotional problem. Because if I'm taking an emotional problem and I'm bringing back an emotional problem, I become emotional. So you're using the third person as the emotional filter to help process before it, the data lands with you. So it's less, not necessarily completely non-emotional, but less emotional. Yes, it right. allows you to reflect on yeah. the situation. Uh, reflecting is, is huge in, in emotional and, and mental well-being. Yeah. Um, that ability to reflect upon the conversations, upon the outputs, upon you know what it is somebody's actually telling you, um, and hear what they're saying, not what you want them to say, or hear what they're saying rather than something that's happened to you that's similar, and then the transference takes place. So for me, this this uh, and I call it the third person is a vital step. Yes, I, I, I've done directing. Yes, I've been to speak, just like you, Mr. Client. Um, yes, I, I have my own mental health issues, um, but they're not the same as yours, identical. There will be differences between them, but if I just suck them up and bring them back, they become a mishmash of mine and yours. So I need to go through that third logical stage yeah. of being able to say, okay, this is what he told me or she told me. What do I do with that? How do I process that? And actually taking a couple of, you know, a few seconds or whatever to think without speaking, even when sat in front of the client, is massively important. Mm -hmm. Rather than just being that straight back, straight back, straight back without having considered an answer and just telling people what you think they want to hear. That to me isn't coaching, that isn't mentoring, that, that isn't actually a, a productive relationship. So what you're doing here through this third party is filtering those emotions, noticing what's then coming out of that filter and then playing that back that's relevant to the, to the client in a way that is intended to be most useful for Indeed. the client. Yeah, yeah. No, 110%. A lot of my time, I, I, you know, all the time I say to the clients, I, I'm a mirror. And I sit here. A mirror with a filter is indeed. what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah. So I'm this mirror, and you're telling me, and I'm filtering it, and I'm showing you the picture. Maybe on the TV rather than a mirror. Yeah. But I'm showing you the picture with my expertise applied. Sure. Okay, great. So part of your expertise is also the filter. Indeed. Yeah. Some coaches that are listening would say, surely isn't that directive because you're using your expertise and knowledge to filter my data. What would be your response to, to that? I think when we work 
when we work with individuals in, in a well-being context, it's slightly different to working with a, somebody who's trying to gain a, a, a tangible skill. Yes. Now, what I'm not doing is providing diagnosis or telling this is what you need to do. What I do is I show the picture to the client and allow them to make the decision on how they change or if they change. And if I haven't got it right, we continue the conversation and we go around the process again, and then we continue the conversation, we continue the conversation. And ultimately, each time we're putting these things in front of the, the client, what we're doing is we're saying, look, have I got this right? Is this what you're actually telling me? You're telling me this, you're telling me this is where the, where the problems lie. And the more we're doing that, again, the more we're going down the road of like no trust, because actually what we're doing is we're we're extracting, we're pulling more information from the individual about the topic, which actually isn't going to be the easiest thing in the world for them to talk about. And what you're doing with this filter is not only making it easier for you and stopping that emotional impact impacting you as a coach, you're making it easier for the client to soften and dilute those emotions so they can look at them in a more logical way, look at that mirror or that TV that you'll bring up to them so that they can come then through and find a logical solution rather than it being embroiled in emotion. Yeah, to, to, to a massive extent. When, when we sort of deal with emotion um, in, in sort of uh, senior levels and things like this, we're kind of looked on by people as robots. You know, you're the guy who's at the top, you're the guy making the decisions. You're not allowed emotions. You're not allowed to be able to. And when people make these, these huge decisions about who stays and who goes, how many people are we laying off, they're not doing it, rubbing their hands together, going, oh, great. They don't enjoy it, hopefully. They, they really hurt. It, it's really painful, the, the HR leads and things that are dealing especially in the current climate and the way things are, are working at the moment. It hurts them. It really hurts them. But who do they tell it hurts them? They can, you know... Who do they disclose to? Who can they show vulnerability to? Correct. And this is, this is part of this process. But in actuality, you're the external third party. You're the person who hasn't got an axe to grind with anyone. They see an opportunity and there's a door. And it's whether you're encouraging them to go through the door or whether you shut the door. And, you know, for me in the world of well-being, my job is to open the door, encourage them through, take the analogy further, sit them down, have a cup of tea and actually allow them to talk and then work out what's, you know. What direction to take. Correct. To yeah. yeah. And it's not me providing a solution. 90% of again, you know, from a coaching relationship, most people I deal with have their own answers. Most people I deal with, you know, they're, they're not completely flummoxed by the fact that they're feeling bad or terrible, whatever the case might be. What they're looking for, some people, is permission to feel that way. You know, am I allowed to feel this way? You know, and sometimes you having that person to talk to allows you the permission to be vulnerable. 
Well, so it's a channel to be able to express, indeed. which is the permission to have that disclosure of emotion to express. Yeah. And that's, that is just as important, in my opinion, to, to senior leaders as it is to junior staff. We all should, in a company environment, have the confidence to be vulnerable at some point. If a company's culture is correct, we shouldn't be in a position where we're worried that if we were to say to somebody, I'm having a really bad day today, yeah. it's going to impact on us and their opinion of us negatively. One of the best pieces of feedback I got from a coach when I was being coached was, he said to me, train we're all vulnerable. And it made me realize that we're all human beings, no matter what level we are in an organization. And having that understanding of vulnerability, not only for myself, but those that I'm leading, puts a different lens through the way that I might then lead with a more human being lens rather than a human doing machine type lens. So just share that for that You know, people follow people. They don't follow robots. You know, it's, 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 it sounds so simplistic, but actually, if you've got, you know what I'm, I'm, what I'm not suggesting is your boss comes in every day, sits down and gives you a three hour lecture on everything that's gone wrong in his life yesterday. And this happens every week, but actually the, the boss that we know is a human because he feels, he thinks, he hurts, he's worried, he's He's a guy I can follow. He's a guy I can believe in. He's a guy that I can trust. Sure. And that for me is the relationship that I encourage in a, in a workplace. Thank you for listening. And as always, all the resources and links mentioned can be found on our website, as can other podcasts. If you want to connect to discuss anything you've heard today or how you can use coaching for a better tomorrow, then please do get in touch.